My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Let me give you a glimpse into the market's mindset on a day like today, where the Dow gained 349 points, the S&P jumped 1.43%, and the NASDAQ roared ahead 1.931%. Huge day. It's like Wall Street was saying, okay, enough with the oils. We're sick of buying the copper stocks. Even the fertilizers at this point are turning us off. Give us something new. Give us something fresh. Give us something that hasn't gone up yet. That's what we want. It might shock you, but that's the real mindset right now. That's how it works. It's the way hedge funds actually think. And hedge funds seem to be the only players in the game right now. Volume is very low. I'm not seeing a lot of institutional interest in stocks right now. How do I know this works? Because I lived it for years. So let me take you behind the curtain and show what it was like to work at a hedge fund with a hard-bitten trader, someone who chewed nails for breakfast and made me wear the post-it note of shame for lunch if I screwed up on a stock. Yeah, she'd stick that stock symbol right on my forehead and make me go get a soft pretzel outside with a post-it on my head. Yep, we're talking Karen Kramer, who ran the trading desk, and she certainly looked at things differently from me. She was arbitrary, mercurial, and belligerent, which is probably why we were such a good team. On a day like today, she might say, hey, that guy Williams, you keep talking about whatever, Larry, he says that every time the S&P has a 50% retracement of its previous decline, the market's actually up a few months later. So we got to buy stuff. We got to buy stuff that's beaten down that makes people, the stuff that people hate. And I would say, well, that's a perfectly good set. That's some criteria. And she'd say, let's buy... Let's buy that dog intel. That doesn't do anything. I mean, that guy's all over the place making foundries. He's in the, uh, Congress and getting applauding him and stuff like that in the State of the Union. And my response is, like, no, not in your life. No, we're not, we're not going to buy intel. We're not going to do that. And she'd pick up the phone and she'd call a broker and say, hey, buy me 100,000 shares of intel, 50 top. Then she would say, what else is beaten down? And I'm like, well, what doesn't obviously matter what I say. She said, I'd say, okay, how about Estee Lauder? Stock's down 100 points from its high. And she would say, you know what? I like that Mac makeup. Let's buy it. Another interesting criteria. So she hit the Goldman Sachs wire, and when the voice on the other end picked up, she'd say, buy, buy me 50 Lauder, 276 top, meaning buy 50,000 shares of EL, and I don't mind paying a higher price. And that, by the way, is how a $273 stock changes directions. Of course, it's not always that simple. I'd do my usual hand-wringing. If I were running a hedge fund right now, I'd be worried about Ukraine. But she'd be worried about missing the rally. Anyway, you get the window to the derision, the duality of human nature, and the volley scene from Strangers on a Train, all in one. Right now, you're seeing a similar dynamic playing out all over Wall Street. That's how you get a rally like today. Now, why does it work? Let's be a little less glib, although I did wear the poster on my head for something like a, well, let's just say we save that for another time. Well, first, traders really do like to buy stuff that feels fresh and new. They do get bored with the winners and want new winners. Intel may be a semiconductor dinosaur, but with its yield near 3%, it certainly feels fresh and new to the hedge funds, which is how you get today's 7% run. 
the stock is cheap and it's been de-risked because the expectations have come down to less than zero. Then there's NVIDIA, up almost 10% today. We know there was a lot of, of what we call bad money that went into the stock ahead of, of CEO Jensen Wong's keynote speech earlier this week. Those weak hands blew it out when NVIDIA didn't rally after his presentation. I say those traders wouldn't know a trillion-dollar TAM, that's a total adjustable market, from a $20 TAM O'Shanter bonnet. With those sellers gone, stock soared. I don't think it's done. Hey, then you got the uh, limbo tricks. The, uh, how much lower can they go stocks? I mean, let's take DocuSign. Uh, extremely profitable company. Great software. Down on its luck because it was the ultimate pandemic play. Yeah, we're coming out of the pandemic. You know what? DocuSign's lost two-thirds of its value, and it should be able to deliver terrific numbers. At these levels, it's fresh. It's new. And the only people who own it either somehow didn't know there was a pandemic or they're just mannequins masquerading as money managers. Now, in truth, while traders are often knee-jerk operators with the attention, say, uh, the span of a mayfly, there are real fundamental reasons why these stocks do work. Now, Intel may no longer be the best of breed, but it is a good company. It's got immense cash flow. It spits out profits like a spot, slot machine that hits triple sevens all across. Just monster. So it can be bought here. Probably bought tomorrow. And because Intel's a major component of just about every semiconductor ETF, when it goes higher, the whole group goes higher. Even its chief competitor, AMD, which is very much in a zero-sum relationship with Intel. This week's Intel, Intel's irrepressible CEO, Pat Gelsinger, is lobbying Congress to invest in domestic semiconductor manufacturing. He's a pretty compelling guy. We're taking, uh, he wants $52 billion worth of subsidies. Maybe he gets it. If he managed to impress... If he wins over enough senators, then you can buy every single semiconductor equipment maker from ASML to Applied Materials to KLA to Kramer Faith, Lamb Research. Hey, for what it's worth, I'm betting Lamb will have a monster quarter. Then you can circle back to the company that had the biggest beat in the semiconductor industry with a stock that deserves to be 20 points higher. I'm talking about Marvell Technology. We own this one for the Child Touch. You can follow us by joining the CMEC Investing Club. Marvell Tech excels in 5G and high-performance computing. Well, it's been crushed with the rest of tech, but now it's beginning to make a comeback, and it did have the best quarter of the season. Hey, how about that Estee Lauder? Sure, it sells at 36 times earnings. Expensive. But the fact is, CEO Fabrizio Freda simply doesn't miss. He's created a juggernaut that does well when you're wearing a mask and you get that vertible ring of pimple fire, so you need the best cleanser. And it does even better when you're mask-free and you need the best makeup to go out in the world again looking like your selfie best for Instagram or TikTok. Hey, shouldn't we be more worried about Ukraine? Yes. Does it make sense to buy anything here with Ukraine hanging over our heads? Well, maybe. See, I think this actually would be the worst time for Putin to pull something crazy. And President Biden just said we will respond in kind if he uses weapons of mass destruction. So that puts some upward limit on what Russia can finally get away with. Does it matter that the market's been up multiple days? Yes, it absolutely does. And that's why traders wanted something new and fresh. Not Archer Daniels, Midland or Exxon, but AMD and Estee Lauder. The bottom line. The hedge funds are in charge here right now, which is how you get today's rotating bullishness. Hey, please, never try to overthink what happens in some of these rallies. Let's go to Rory in Louisiana. Rory! Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah, Rory! I'm a first-time, long-time. First-time, long-time. Yep, first-time, long-time, and one of the founding members of the Investment Club. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Glad to have you aboard. And thank you for going over Larry Williams' retracement this morning. That was very enlightening. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, that was our morning meeting at 1020. I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. 
Okay. Uh, the stock I'm going to be talking about has been up for the last five days, and my the current price of WIN is 25% lower than my basis. My question is, should I nibble or hold on for a better exit price? It's interesting you mentioned Larry Williams because Larry told me that WIN just went into bull market mode. Uh, we've been wrong on WIN. I talk about some of the good ones. This has been very bad. We didn't see, obviously, what happened. It was going to happen in China. I think the stock is so low, sir. I mean, what is it? it, it it's at $9 billion. It'll cost you $13 billion to replicate. So I'm saying you can, you can nibble. Let's go to Anil in Virginia. Anil. Hey, Jimmy. This is Anil Kakar from Virginia. All right. What's up? Thank you for, thank you for taking my call. I just have a quick question about Lucid, Lucid Motors. What is the long-term and short-term? Uh, what? Uh, okay, well, the, you know, the market has changed, and you can own it for trade. But remember, we are focused and have been since November on companies that make things and do stuff at a profit and return money to shareholders. That is not what Lucid does. How about Steve in California, Steve? Uh, yes, uh, thank you for taking my call, Jim. Uh, this uh, pertains to uh, Ford Motor Company. Yes. Uh, my concern is uh, about uh, the aluminum prices. I noticed uh, that they're running pretty close to their highs at this time. And uh, one of the big uh, manufacturers or, or producers of uh, uh, aluminum is uh, China and uh, yeah. Russia. And I noticed that uh, Russia is on sanctions at this particular time. Right. And uh, I wondered what your opinion is of, uh, of Ford Motor okay, Company. Well, Steve, you know, you know, we own a ton of it for the investing investing club. We did sell some much higher. Uh, I want to buy it back, but not yet because of exactly what you said. That there's every raw cost that's into a car is much higher. And that is going to crimp profitability. Let's go to David in Kentucky. David. Jim, thanks for taking my call. My question is regarding Upstart. The mm-hmm. crew revenue is 21 by 264% and added uh, $1.2 billion to the balance sheet. The Q4 report was outstanding and they announced the $400 million buyback. I'm seeing a change of character in the volume pattern. What's your opinion on me starting a small Well, and what happened is, is that there was a delinquency number that was too high that scared a lot of people out of the stock. I'd like to have the company back on to get... Be sure that that delinquency number, if it's as high as what the analysts are saying, then you can't own the stock. I'm just going to be point blank. It's, it's letting too many bad loans through. But we got to double check. I'm not going to give up on it. All right. Hedge funds are running this show right now. And that's how we got today's rotating bullishness. Don't overthink it. All made money tonight. T-Mobile has a new plan to innovate in the 5G space, so I'm learning more about the company's ambitions with the CEO. Then, what happened the last time the Fed hiked rates by 50 basis points? And should we expect history to repeat? I'm breaking it all down. And amid a booming agricultural landscape, is it time to think about Agco? I'm going to talk to the company's top brass. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. At this point, 
point of business cycle, inflation is clearly rampaging everywhere. Federal Reserve obviously going to raise multiple times. Uh, we got to figure out what do the hedge funds do? Well, they have a playbook, and the playbook says you need to circle the wagons around the stocks that are immunized against a slowdown or even a recession. In other words, companies that provide essential products or services, like the wireless carriers, how can you go without that? But because it's a difficult moment, you have to be selective and stick with best of breed. In wireless, that means it's T-Mobile U.S. For years, this stock was one of the most consistent winners around, but then it peaked at 150 last summer, a little more than a year after its closing on its acquisition of Sprint. And then the darn things tumbled back to 101 a couple months ago. But since then, T-Mobile stock has begun to work its way higher, rebounding 125 and change. And I'm betting it's got more room to run. Just yesterday, KeyBank upgraded the stock from sector weight to overweight, basically hold the buy, citing the company's best-in-class 5G network, the synergies from this print merger, which we're going to talk about, and the industry-leading growth rate. I couldn't agree more, so as we approach the two-year anniversary of the Sprint deal's closing, let's take a closer look with Mike Sievert. He's the president and CEO of T-Mobile U.S., who knows so much about this industry. Find out more about the competitive landscape and his company's quest for wireless supremacy. Mr. Sievert, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Okay, so my guy watch a lot of March Madness. I'm sure you do, too. I'm pretty glued to it. I watch a lot of football. I got three different networks all saying they're the best. I mean, in one way or another, they say they're the best. But when I look at the data, I clearly see that T-Mobile empirically is the best. What are the other guys doing that they're allowed to say it? Well, you know, customers can see right through all that. It's amazing. You look at the TV. Everybody says, I'm a great deal, and I have the best 5G But look, in 2021, we had the best year in our history, 5.5 million new net customers beating the entire industry on postpaid yet again for the seventh year in a row. And so customers see right through it. They know we're two years ahead in this 5G race. And in two years, we'll still be two years ahead. And they love the fact that finally the value leader in this industry is also gunning to be the network leader. But they're also uh, have these exact same deals for the Apple iPhone 13. I mean, but some of them advertise. And I say, oh, that that's the way to get the 13. But there, there really isn't any difference in any of them. Are, is there a way that you can make it clear that your deal is better or are they all the same? Well, customers expect a good deal on the phones, and we provide that. Um, but what they really want is a good deal month after month after month on the best product and service. And only one company is positioned to offer that. You know, we save a family of four, like $1,000 a year every year for the rest of their life. I mean, that's the deal that postpaid T-Mobile offers relative to our competition. And it's on the best 5G network in the country. No one's been ever able to offer those two things at the same time before. And it's why what we have to offer is such a breakthrough. All right. Well, I know your predecessor, John Ledger, I used to joke around about some of your competitors. But now you have a new focused ATT. They are getting rid of what they bought in terms of entertainment. And they're really going to be gunning for you. What does it mean? Well, I, you know, I love the fact that we have been able to bring about exactly what we promised two years ago when we merged this company and created the new T-Mobile. We said we'd bring about more competition, and that's what we're seeing. And not just competition on price, but competition on quality. You know, our lead on 5G is causing, to your point, the other guys to have to scramble to catch up. Two years ago, AT&T was talking about being a modern media company, and 5G was nowhere on the radar. Now they want to be a player in mid-band 5G, and that's due to our leadership. We're creating that competition. And, you know, two years ago, there was so much cynicism about this merger because, let's face it, Jim, our industry is filled with absolute disasters when it comes to mergers. And, you know, that company is certainly one of them. 
And, you know, for us to be able to be here two years later, taking credit for a healthy, vibrant industry where T-Mobile is out in front leading, that really is a, is a proof of the thesis that we fought so hard for to create this company. Right now, I know I am concerned if someone asked me, maybe we should wait to see when your final migration, the shutting down of Sprint occurs, what that's going to mean in terms of churn. Assure us that you're ready. Well, first of all, if you wait for that, you'll miss the run. Um, you know, because we can see already in the data what happens. 64% of our Sprint customers have made it over to the T-Mobile network already. And the ones that have the full suite of the network, the offer, and a new device plan on the T-Mobile side, their churn profile looks just like Magenta, just like the best churning base in all of the industry in 21, T-Mobile. And so we know where this is all headed. And we're working our way through the integration, not just on time, but ahead of schedule. All right. So one last question, a bit more personal. Uh, there's been some companies in the news where this the succession hasn't been that smooth, frankly, uh, where it seems like the guy who ran the company and the new guy don't necessarily get along. John Ledger is a famously fiery guy, but it looks like your transition was smooth. Any lessons on how you make it so that smooth, even though personalities may not be the same? Well, part of it is having uh, a long and thoughtful succession. John and I have been close partners for many years. I've been at this company as the number one or number two person for a decade now. And I just have so much to thank for him for the mentorship and partnership and friendship. So for us, this was long thought out by our board and planful. And that obviously is a great thing for our shareholders. You've seen in the two years since we made the transition and the new company was created, our stock's up 50%. We had the best year ever in our company's history in 2021. And that's to the credit of the tens of thousands of people in this company. Well, you are the growth company in the industry, and I continue to recommend you just as I did when John took it over so many years ago. Mike Siever, President and CEO of T-Mobile, TMUS. Thank you for being on the show, Mike. Good to see you. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Look, we like growth. I know, look, people want dividend. It's Verizon. I don't necessarily, I think that ATT dividend is concerning me. But if you want growth, as we've said over and over again from John Ledger first came to T-Mobile, it's easy. It's T-M-U-S. We have money's back here from the break. Coming up, Kramer lays down a basis for the downstream impact of a basis point hike. Be ready for any interest rate. Stick with Kramer. Are we all just sinners in the hands of an angry Fed? On Monday, in response to a question on the subject, Fed Chief Jay Powell said that nothing was stopping the Fed from hitting us with a 50 basis point double rate hike at its next Fed meeting in early May, as long as it's necessary to stamp out inflation. That comment opened the floodgates. We'd already had a couple of federal open market committee members floating the idea of a double rate hike. But as soon as Powell seemingly got on board with the idea, or at least didn't shoot it down, we heard from a couple of regional Fed presidents who said they were open to the idea. Goldman Sachs now expects 50 basis point hikes at both the May and the June Fed meetings. Suddenly it's become the conventional wisdom. A double rate hike almost feels like a foregone conclusion. Not only at the May meeting, but maybe multiple times this year. That's the number one reason why the stock market sold off earlier this week, because a 50 basis point hike means the Fed just isn't tapping the brakes in the economy. It's actually applying real pressure. And hey, if ever there were a time for rate hike, a double one as it is, it would be right now. I mean, I desperately want Powell to engineer a soft landing for the economy. But last month, the consumer price index was up 7.9% year over year. And we have to assume it will be up even higher in March, given the spikes in oil and wheat. 
And by the way, the rest of the grain complex is just going to get worse all year. Meanwhile, today we got the lowest jobless claims number since 1969. I don't know if we'll really get a double rate. A lot can change in six weeks. But for now, the market's taking this given. Now, what does a 50 basis point double rate hike even mean for your portfolio? I'm on a mission to help you become a better investor, right? And sometimes that means giving you a little history lesson. So tonight we're going to go into the way back machine to the last time the Fed raised interest rates by 50 basis points. We have to go back a long way because it's been almost 22 years since the last double rate hike. Now I'm still a hedge fund manager, which hit in May of 2000, a time when Alan Greenspan was still Fed chairman and my Rocky and Bolinkel references were a lot less dated. You need to know what happened the last time we got a 50 basis point rate hike. But first, let's set the scene. Because the spring of 2000 was a crazy monumental moment. This is right after the dot-com bubble burst in March of 2000. In fact, by the time Greenspan hit us with a double rate hike, the Nasdaq had already pulled back about 30% from its peak. But its peak had been really high. Just like today, high-flying tech stocks with no earnings were ground zero for the sell-off. You don't want to own them when inflation is rampant. While the Dow and the S&P took less damage, down 8% and 6.5% respectively. At least they have earnings. This time around, the Nasdaq is currently down 12.5% from the November peak. The Dow and the S&P both continued rallying through early January, but they're both now off about 6% from their respective highs. I don't think we're watching a one-to-one replay of the dot-com collapse. That would make no sense, and people who analogize to that are going to be wrong. But it wouldn't surprise me if the averages experience more pain between now and the next Fed meeting in early May, especially the unprofitable companies in the tech-heavy Nasdaq that I keep trying to get you out of and you're getting another chance. While the dot-com period was a lot more extreme than the magnificent runs we saw in 2020 and 2021, there are some parallels. Back in 2000, after a multi-year speculative frenzy, the Fed was working hard to cool down an overheated economy, which is not unlike what we were seeing now. At that point, I was screaming every day that the Fed ought to be raising margin rates, but Greenspan would have nothing of it. There are some major differences, too, though. By the time Greenspan rolled out the 50 basis point bazooka, he'd already hit us with five regular rate hikes over the previous 11 months. He was also tightening off a much higher uh, level. The Fed funds rate was at 4.75% when the cycle started and already stood at 6% before the double rate hike that May. Watched much for the economy to handle. Already that proved to be the final rate hike of the tightening cycle. By early 2001, the Fed was already cutting rates. This time, even if Powell hits us with a double rates uh, hike in May, almost no one expects it to be, be the end. We're hearing calls for multiple 50 basis point hikes. Remember, we started from zero, and so far we've only gotten a single quarter point tightening. Also, unlike 22 years ago, we're coming off of a pandemic that's created all sorts of economic, bizarre economic distortions. We got a horrific war between Russia and Ukraine that's causing rampant inflation in food as well as energy. That's totally beyond Jay Powell's control. Most importantly, in 2000, the Knicks were still good at basketball, which may sound incomprehensible unless you're uh, maybe a member of the uh, Patrick Ewing era. So what did the last double rate hike mean for the stock market? Nothing good. From the Nasdaq's peak in March of 2000 to its bottom in October of 2002, it lost 78% of its value. More than 60% of that decline occurred after the Fed's double rate hike in May. While there was a rally over the summer of 2000, it turned out to be a trap. How about the S&P 500? Well, basically the same story. Fell 50% from peak to trough. And like the Nasdaq, nearly 90% of the decline came after Greenspan's double rate hike. Dow Jones average held a little bit better, down 39% from peak to trough, but 80% of the pain came after the double rate hike. Of course, there's a huge caveat here because the 2000-2002 period was also an unprecedented time. We had a contested presidential election that only came down the Supreme Court, followed by a recession in 2001. And then there's the elephant in the room, 
September 11th terrorist attacks that interrupted any attempt at a normal recovery. So I don't expect the averages to repeat their hideous performance from 22 years ago. But I thought this was an important point to point out. I think you need to know this stuff. I think it's worth looking at which stocks fared better in the year after Greenspan went nuclear. From May 15, 2000 to May 15, 2001, eight of the 20 strongest stocks in the S&P 500 were in healthcare, medical devices, drug distribution, drug companies, classic recession-resistant names. The housing stocks did surprisingly well, too. That's because the double rate hike marked the end of the tightening cycle in 2000. That won't happen this time. You also have some consumer stocks like Altria and PVH, as well as some true innovators like Activision and NVIDIA that defy the broader tech wreck. As for the worst performers after Greenspan's double rate hike, tech, tech, and then more tech. And it took a long time for the dot-com bubble to unwind. Best I can say is you got some incredible long-term buying opportunities, ultimately, in Amazon and Apple. Going sector by sector, healthcare rallied 38% in the year after the double rate hike. Utilities gained 32%. Communication stocks were up 31%. Energy rallied 27%. And the financials jumped 24%. In short, there were a lot of winners especially health providers, gas utilities, entertainment stocks, oil and gas producers, and the insurance industry. And that's exactly what's supposed to work during a Fed-mandated recession. So do not turn off your set and think, you know what, there's no money to be made. It's the opposite. We just have a smaller universe. Again, I don't expect the total repeat of 2000. But maybe you can understand why Wall Street's gotten so negative, given what happened the last time the Fed hit us with a double rate hike. But the bottom line? We know what works when the Fed tightens aggressively. The lesson in 2000 is to stick with profitable companies with real products or services that also have meaningful dividends and buybacks and to sell the rest. In other words, the CNBC Investing Club mantra rules. Oliver, in my home state of New Jersey, Oliver. Hi, Jim. Long-time listener and a big fan. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Oliver. What's up? So I run a saving and investment club called Hellwell Wealth Partners, and we would like your views on two high-dividend mining stocks that we think could act as bond proxies in a high-inflation, low-interest environment. They are Rio Sinto, R-I-O, 10% dividend, and Vale out of Brazil, 11% dividend. What do you think? All right, let's take Vale off the table because I don't like their governance. But Rio Tinto has been one that I've liked for a very, very long time. It's been a terrific hedge, and I say you should invest in that, Oliver, and best of luck to you. Thank you for joining the club. Let's go to Hassan in Georgia. Hassan. Mr. Kramer, thanks for taking my call. Of course. My question is, what are your thoughts on McCormick and company? All right, this is the only one. No, Hershey's been good. General Mills did good. And McCormick are good. And McCormick, people are still cooking at home. That's something that didn't change after the pandemic ended. And I think McCormick is a great long-term buy run by a visionary, Lawrence Curzius. So you've got my blessing to buy it right here. All right, the lesson from the last 50 basis point rate hike, not 25, in 2000 is that you have to stick with profitable companies with real products or services that also have meaningful dividends and buybacks. There's always a bull market somewhere. Hey, much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Agco. Could a sustained bull market in agriculture continue to benefit a company like Agco? You want to see that. Check in with the CEO. Then Wall Street has a conscience. And I'm sharing why some big investors are putting an end to knee-jerk global investing. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Early 
this week, I gave you some of my favorite ways to play the raging bull market in agriculture. And right now, the one with the best value, it's simple. It's Agco. That's the high-tech farm equipment maker with a stock that sells for just 12 times this year's earnings forecast. That's an anomaly. Agco currently trades at a huge discount to another one of my favorites, Deer. Despite the fact that they reported a blowout quarter last month, solidly beating the expected sales, coupled with a monster $1.31 earnings beat, that's right, off a $1.77 basis. Even with ongoing supply chain challenges, which we'll ask about, the company gave you a terrific full-year forecast, too. And this was before the war in Ukraine sent the entire crop complex into overdrive. While the stock's rallied 23% since then, it's still down from its highs last May. I think it's got a lot more room to run, but do not take it from me. Let's check in with Arakan Sodia. He's the chairman and CEO of Agco. Get a better sense of where it's coming. Hey, Mr. Ansodia, welcome back to Manbot. Hey, great to be with you, Jim. All right, so look, you had excellent results across the board. I mean, we're talking about sales being up 22%. Uh, you're, you're just an amazing triumph over some of the rising costs with great gross margins. So before we go into the specifics, can you just tell us how you did it and give us a little review of the tractor market? Because right now, it's probably the most, I, I hesitate to say it, exciting time to be in your business. Yeah, absolutely. It's a record year in the history of our company. At the core of it is our focus on being the most farmer-focused company in the industry. And so we bring bringing a lot of new technology to the market. The customers have really embraced it. We've got the highest order board in the history of the company. And then we really had to work very hard at working through the supply chain challenges last year to make sure we could build as many of those orders and get them out to our farmers. Well, let's talk about that for a second. When I look at uh, the pictures of combines behind you, every single particle in there has gone up in price. So how does a CEO manage in that world? Well, it's been an enormously dynamic time. We've had a team going for over two and a half years now working in these things called control towers, our entire supply chain organization has been working very, very hard at making sure they can overcome all the obstacles, whether it's through COVID or the more recent supply chain challenges, to make sure we can keep the flow of components coming into our factories, to make sure we can build those machines in a high-quality way and get them out to our farmers so they can be even more productive now than they've been in the past. Well, I can tell you that you will end up writing the handbook because there's a lot of people uh, in the screen right this so far this year who did not have control towers, who wish they did. Let's talk about uh, your predecessor often talked about how he knew Russia cold and Ukraine cold, and he always did. Uh, it, not a huge part of your business, but an important part. Uh, how are you managing in both Ukraine and Russia? Well, you know, I spent a lot of time in my career uh, in both Russia and Ukraine, visited many, many times, helped put up a factory there, visited a lot of farmers there. Uh, but for right now, our primary focus is to help our employees stay safe, uh, our dealers stay safe. We've moved a lot of them out to the safer part of the country or across the border. Hundreds, in fact, have been part of that process. Number two is helping the farmers in that area stay productive. Enormously challenging times for them under about every challenge you can imagine. So we're helping them as they're getting going with planting right now, make sure they can stay productive. This is extra critical because about 13% of the global calories came out of production when these borders shut down. Russia and Ukraine represent something like 25% of the export capacity of wheat and barley. So we've got to help those Ukrainian farmers keep farming. We've been doing a lot of that. And then thirdly is, uh, as we've moved some of these, these folks out of the area, we've been housing them in some of our employees' houses, our factories, 
helping them, but then more broadly, we donated to the UN World Food Program and started up a, an activity called uh, Share the Meal, where we're matching any employee or, uh, or contributions to help the refugees anywhere in the area from this crisis. So it's many different activities and many different dimensions. Uh, I'm just a really amazed at the, at the velocity and flexibility our team has had to take on all these challenges. Well, let's drill down on that for a second. Uh, I know I want to talk to some of the, to some of the acquisitions, but uh, safety, how do you keep people safe in a war zone? Well, we've got a, essentially a, a tracking mechanism that we know where every single employee is within the country of Ukraine every part of the day. We talk to them every single day. Our local team on the ground uh, is, has been keeping communications open. Uh, we prepaid a lot of their expenses, got them some hard currency, and then, like I said, helped some of them get some of their families out of the country if they chose to do that. So there's a number of different activities we've been doing, helping them with requirements and then getting them moved to, to safer areas where it's needed. Well, that calorie count that you give, no one's, I've never heard it expressed like that, and suddenly it became uh, a lightning bolt to me. How can we make up the slack? I mean, I know you've got some terrific combines, some great technology, but can we really get that much more out of the land or the rest of the world? Well, and this is a really big deal, because when those kind of, that volume of calories comes out of the food chain, it triggers other things, not only hunger, but unrest. The last time we had this kind of a disruption, it was one of the major triggers for the Arab Spring. And it's because a lot of this food goes to areas like North Africa, Middle East, places where the cost for food is a large portion of the income uh, of that population. So it's a big deal. What are we doing about it? Um, well, countries are putting more land into production, um, moving it out of some conservation programs into production. Mm. The EU just announced a program like that. North America organizations looking at some of that. That's what governments are doing. What Agco is doing is trying to find sustainable ways to help farmers raise their productivity. You know, fertilizer is, is uh, not only more expensive, but it's hard to get. Some right. farmers just can't get it right now. And so we're helping them find either farming practice changes or use of technology to be able to get their yields up while using less inputs doing it in a more sustainable way. And I know uh, Apex AI, uh, GreenEye Technologies, Apario Acquisition, these have all helped in terms of what you're trying to do. Absolutely. You know, Agco is so much more of a technology company than almost anybody recognizes. We made uh, seven moves last year, five acquisitions, two investments, you named a couple of them, all in the precision and technology space, artificial intelligence, machine learning, software development, things like that. We increased our uh, advanced uh, engineering budget within the company, 50 to $60 million last year, biggest move in the history of the company, doing it again this year, doubling down on that. It's all going to software, technology, automation, and things like that. Well, well, congratulations on everything that you've done, and, and really great that you're looking after people, because I think that, you know, look, I've never been in a war zone. I don't know what it's like, but I know that it's got to be dreadful, and you're doing the right thing. And, that's just really good thoughts. Really good thoughts. Eric Hansiota, Chairman and CEO of Agco. Thank you for coming on May of Money, sir. Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you. Guys, we like the Ag Complex. You know we think Deere is a great company, but this is the one that we've been behind for so long, and it's been a winner the whole way. They have money's back after the break. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder. And answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round.
It's time! It's time to lay with And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski die to the lightning round. Because I'm with Nick in New Jersey. Nick! Booyah, Jim. Nick from Jersey. How are you? I am good to speak to a fellow Jersey. And what's happening? Absolutely right. I'm calling you today about Innovix Corporation. Ticker is ENBX. Oh, lithium high risk. I mean, you know, there was a time where you and I would sit around, we'd go to Roots or maybe we'd go to La Dolce Vita in Belmar and just be celebrating over a glass of wine about that one. But it is, that, that ship has sailed. Let's go to Drew in New Hampshire. Drew. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Ah, not bad. How about you? Good. Trying to I lose weight, you know. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> I had a question, especially on valuation of Zim Integrated Shipping Services, ticker ZIM. Okay, this one is a momentum-driven stock whose momentum, I think, has peaked. And I've been wrong about it, though, but I just it's a rocket ship, and I just think it's coming down the other way. Let's go to David in Utah. David! Booyah, Jim! Booyah! Watch you every night. My wife doesn't like the sound of your voice, but I dig you. Shall I sound my voice? My mom liked it. <laughs> I'm, I'm calling about Yandex. Y-N-D-X. But that's not really that's not really trading. It's kind of like halted. Um, like really halted. It, it's a Russian stock. Uh, I don't know. I mean, why don't you go buy Anna Karen or War and Peace or something? Let's go to Barbara in Texas. Barbara. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Hi, Barbara. Uh, my question is, what do you think of Ferguson's? Fergie. I like it. It's HVAC. It's real. They make things. They sell them. They give you money. It's good. I say, I like Fergie. Let's go to Paul in Florida. Paul. Hey, Jim. How you doing? What's the difference between Moderna's RNA technology and Ionis's RNA technology? You know, that is a great question. I keep thinking that exactly what you're saying, which is why isn't Ionis breaking out here? But it's just, look, that guy being sell, my hat is off to him. And I don't want to do, I mean, if I want to own mRNA, I'm going to own Moderna. Let's go to Stephen. Whoa, in Alabama, Stephen. Jim, big booyah coin from the home of the Alabama Crimson Tide. Whoa. Alabama. All right, roll tide. Let's go to work. Roll tide. Jim, the, the stock I'm calling about is J-B-L-U. All right, I may, t- I may break my rule. That, that company does not make money, but the travel business is so great. That, I mean, you could just have uh, the Wright brothers can make money at this point in that business. So I'm going to say it's okay. Let's go to Rob in Ohio. Rob. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I appreciate your enthusiasm for stocks, Jim. Oh, thank you. I've been a viewer since I first heard your rant for the round the world back in 2008 when you told Aaron Burnett the Fed knows nothing. Right. My stock, Jim, is BTU. I mean, you know, look, the Germans did close their coal plants too early. I know that still to about 25 percent of our baseload is is coal. Uh, but I just can't recommend one because I know it's going away. And I'm not going to be the guy who the last guy to recommend coal in this country. Let's go to Craig in California. Craig. Hey, 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 Jimmy Chill, a.k.a. Chill Master J. Chill's been all over Twitter. Cheer. I don't want those apes selling that AMC or GME. They better not let me down. What's going on? Uh, I've done pretty well picking up some stocks around a 52-week low. I'm considering one uh, uh, seemingly oversold uh, despite EPSD the last four quarters. 
about 20% revenue growth year over year. Uh, multiples have traded down to about 13, a dividend aristocrat about two and a quarter percent dividend. Uh, they're doing a $2 billion share buyback. And at this time last year, their lawn and garden segment was on fire. Uh, what's your long-term thoughts? Uh, is, is Stanley Black & Decker? Hey, Tosa? It's stuck. There's some Dutch, bro. Um, hey, listen, Black & Decker is too... That's a joke. Black & Decker's cheap, it's good, and I would buy it right here. I just sent that to a major home home retailer the other day. What the heck is that stock doing? That the guy ought to come. I like the guy. The CEO ought to come on because that stock is way too cheap. And that ledge him. This is the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, for what shall it profit a man? Kramer takes a stand against money madness when Mad Money returns. Say goodbye to the end of history. Ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union more than 30 years ago, Wall Street's bought into the notion of globalization, that we can invest anywhere and expect to make money, given that the entire world more or less embraces capitalism. Democracy and free market capitalism are supposed to be unbeatable, hence the end of history. We're not just talking stocks here. Globalized investing meant you could buy the bonds of practically any country because even if the government defaults, it would only have to restructure if it ever wants to borrow money again. And all governments need to borrow money. But the Russian invasion of Ukraine has called that whole thesis into question. Many internationally oriented hedge funds have huge operations in Russia where they're likely to incur unspeakable losses. Obviously, Russia has become uninvestable for a host of reasons. An unprovoked invasion, war crimes, market manipulation, anti-business rule changes. But let me add another one to the mix. Investor consciousness. See, there's a new generation of investors who refuse to be party to crimes against humanity. Recently, we bought a position in Halliburton, the oil service company, for the charitable trust. Before we buy anything, we always give members of the CNBC Investing Club a heads up. Let them buy first if they agree with our reasoning. Our thesis in Halliburton was simple. Even though publicly traded oil companies don't want to drill in order to keep prices up, privately held oil producers, they need to pump in order to show growth. Halliburton's a great American oil service company, so given the relentless rise in crude, we thought it made a lot of sense. Then Russia invades Ukraine, and suddenly Halliburton's tagged as complicit because it's got a small Russian business. We immediately caught a ton, a hail of heat about our investment. And for good reason, frankly, I don't want to be complicit in crimes against humanity. So we said if Halliburton doesn't flee, we'd flee the stock. In the end, I got out of Russia and we stayed. I bring this up because so many smaller investors now seem to embrace this new mentality. They don't want to reward companies that do business with war criminals. But for the most part, big institutional money managers didn't really care about human rights. They tend to view these issues as a bit of a sideshow. That's been Wall Street's general attitude my entire career. Now, though, it's changing. Thoughtful investors like Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, have begun to question what I call knee-jerk global investing because no one really wants to put their money in a pariah state, even if it might represent good value. I'm glad they're finally taking ethics into consideration, but I wish they'd actually go a step further and adopt a code of conduct. That's what could change things. goes for the companies that maintain the international indices like MSCI, too. Would it really be so hard to say we want investing in countries that commit genocide? Now, I'm sure there'll be fund managers who say, well, that's impossible to tell what's really happening in these situations. Others will argue that you would have passed up on some big, easy easy profits like, say, in China. If you avoided their stocks just because of human rights obligations, you might not have made as much money. 
Given the recent performance of the Chinese stock market, though, I say not so fast. If a regime is willing to kill its own people en masse or commit atrocities abroad, why the heck would you expect them to respect their capital markets? So why invest in a criminal nation? Maybe by voting with your feet, you can make a difference. Years ago, when I was a senior at Harvard, we protested to stop the, to stop the university from investing its endowment money in anything connected to apartheid South Africa. I wore the armband signaling my favorite investment to the, you know, to the process, even as I figured the university wouldn't care. My parents were obviously baffled, but I wore In the end, though, the university buckled under, and it did divest. Many others followed suit. Companies that did a lot of business in South Africa saw their stocks get hammered. Soon they either retreated from the country or tried to change the regime. Ultimately, apartheid came to an end. The divestment movement helped Nelson Mandela usher in real democracy. So let me make this real simple. If globalization means funding crimes against humanity, maybe we need a different approach to money management. Don't invest in murderous pariah states. It's not that complicated. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you to find it just for you right here on Bad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.